The text for this morning's sermon is Luke 21, 25 through 38. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 38. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Uh, Father, We would know nothing about this coming day if you didn't tell us. Father, I pray that you would help our minds as we try to understand what you say to us in your word. Father, I pray that you would help the prophets help us get the picture in our mind this morning. And Father, I pray that it would be practical in our lives that all of us would tremble before your word as we read about the Son of Man coming in power and glory. Father, I pray that this text would have its full effect on us in the power of the Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I titled the message, Reality is Coming. There is a sense where often we live outside of reality. Uh, Paul David Tripp says, we don't live according to reality. We live according to our perceived reality. We make our choices based on what we perceive to be true. But it won't always be that way. There will be a day when everyone will see clearly truth. Reality will set in on everyone 
on the day when Jesus Christ comes riding on the clouds. Now, as Christians, we have the ability to live according to reality when we walk by faith according to what God's Word says. If only faith were automatic, though. If only once we believe the first time, it went into default mode, and now all we do is walk by faith. But what does Paul say to the church? Don't walk according to the Spirit, or according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Well, where's the Spirit? The Spirit's inspired the Word of God. If we're going to walk with the Spirit, we need to look at the Spirit's words. And faith is a struggle. It's a battle for the Apostle Paul. What does he say at the end of his life? I fought the fight of faith, which means it wasn't easy. He describes it as a fight or I finished the race. Have you ever ran a race? Have you ever ran a marathon? They're hard. Paul wakes up in the morning. He says, I need to die every day. I need to take up my cross. I need to remember who I am. I got to live according to reality. I can wake up and say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Or I can say with Christ, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Hallowed be your name, not my name. And yet, that's not easy. That's a battle. And yet, maybe the greatest help for Christians, the greatest dose of reality that helps our faith may be meditating on the text that's before us, on the reality of the day of the Lord, the second coming. Last week we looked at the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD being the type of the anti-type, which is when Christ returns. What does this culture need? The president of the seminary I went to Al Mohler continually called this culture that we live in the culture of death. We celebrate death. We celebrate things like abortion, like assisted suicide. We're a culture of death. There's skulls everywhere. You drive around town and death is celebrated. It's a culture that lives not according to truth and not according to reality. And so what does a culture like this need? It needs a dose of reality. You can only celebrate death as long as the second coming of the Son of Man is not true. Otherwise, you're insane to celebrate death. If there's no account, if there's no accounting, then let the sexual revolution go. Whatever you want, whatever you feel like, whatever you want to do sexually, do it. 
unless the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds. We see in Revelation 18, beginning in verse 2, we, we, we see the final judgment. It, it comes up in chapter 14, and then we see it in 16 in Revelation. We hear about this city, Babylon. And I think what Babylon is, is it is it refers to the, here's what MacArthur says, the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist. Paul says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's playing the song. The people are dancing to his drumbeat. And all the nations are in bed with this harlot called Babylon. They're all experiencing these fleshly pleasures with Babylon. And what we see, though, in Revelation 18.2, we read, And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take parts in her and share in her plagues. And then you see that Babylon falls in an hour, in a moment. Babylon falls. Our culture says, join the revolution. If you own a company, join the sexual revolution. This is the way the world's going. This is the way to be loving. But what if Babylon in one hour, what if the smoke of her torment goes up forever, describing eternal punishment for those who have joined Babylon? You see, without recognizing the practicality of the second coming of Christ, we might be drawn in to share in adultery with this harlot, with this system that is antichrist. What do our churches need who are like the church of Laodicea written about in Revelation chapter 3. Where God says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I have need of nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does a church like Laodicea need? What do churches in America who've become rich, they don't see their need. They don't have needs like the rest of the world. We've become wealthy and so we've become lukewarm. We need to see the end. We need to see Christ the King that comes in glory and power. How practical is the text that is before us? In fact, it's the most spectacular event that will ever take place on the face of this earth. Never to even come close to being duplicated. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus is talking about in this text. Unlike, uh, John MacArthur writes, unlike his first coming, when he came in humility to die as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus will come again to kill with power and great glory. He will manifest His power by both destroying and renewing the world, defeating and judging Satan, the demons, Antichrist, and his forces, and eliminating all the unregenerate, at the same time establishing His kingdom for those who belong to Him. The first time Jesus came, Jesus' parents and a few shepherds and some wise men and kings got to worship him. Just a small few. And the rest of the world slept. It was a normal day. God incarnate came into the world, humble as a little baby. And yet this event is in stark contrast to that event. In fact, we're told uh, in Acts 1 7, or I'm sorry, in Revelation, I meant Revelation uh, 1 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every I will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Everyone, all the Old Testament saints, will come with him robed in white, 
All the Christians, all the believers through all of time will be there as he comes riding on the clouds. And the believers on earth at the time will be caught up with the believers there. And all the unbelievers on earth will be there to see the glory of Christ as he comes. Every eye is going to see this event. It's different than the first coming. The second coming is described in a much different way. And so as let's just take a overview of the text and then we're just going to ponder some of the aspects of this second coming and then we're going to consider uh, what sort of fruit it ought to produce in our lives. All right? So look at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars. And on the earth, the distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. All right? There's going to be distress because this is judgment on Antichrist, judgment on the unbelieving world. Ponder the return. The first time he came to be a sacrifice for sins and open up this epoch of grace where those who trust in the Son of God can be saved. But when he comes a second time, he's not coming for second chances. He's coming to judge and to make war. It's a cosmic event. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And when you mess with the moon, the sea begins to roar. Waves like you've never seen waves. And it'll be terrifying. We see this when in the first verse there, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. That's not cool. That's not like, oh, wow, look at this. This is terrifying. This is a day like scientists have never seen. And when you root your hope in the natural world and not in a God who controls the natural world, your entire life all you're standing on begins to crumble. There will be distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the sign, it's a sign. You see that? There will be signs right before. Now, the events being described, I believe, are after the Great Tribulation. This is the very end. All that has taken place. Matthew says in Matthew 24, 29, immediately 
after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give his light. So this is the very end that we're looking at. And when these signs are there, Christ coming on the clouds is right at the door. Now Mark tells us no one knows the day or hour. It's not as though it's like a clock, but it is a sign saying it's coming very soon. And the believers of those days are going to have to hang on to those signs or they would die in terror with what's going on if God didn't give them a sign of what is coming. And those words that are used, when he says distress of nations, perplexity, the idea is utter shock. And it's shock to the degree, it says fainting with fear. Literally, that word feigning means to breathe out your last. People, it seems, will be dying. They'll be scared to death. You know, we look at a world when a virus comes into it, and you look at the chaos and the fear that comes upon people. What will it be like on this day? At a cosmic level, when the sun that always does the same thing and the moon that always does the same thing and the stars that always do the same thing don't. Just to give you a little help, sometimes as we go to the scripture, we become, stuff comes too familiar to us. Oh yeah, I've read this. I've heard this. We lose the childlikeness where we Quit saying this is actually going to happen. And what is it actually going to be like? And so I want to read the predictions of some of the prophets speaking about this day to add to the imagery that you're going to need in your mind to help you bring reality into your life. Help you live practically this week. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. And the reason why we're going here is we're trying to fill out the picture of what the day of the Lord will be like. God wants you to know. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. What's that look like? What's that look like? They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Shock, looking at each other. What's happening? What's going on? What's happening to this world? 
I suppose in their deception, they'll look at each other and say, climate change, I don't know. What are you going to say? What are you going to say about it? They'll look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolate desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their consolations will not give their light. There won't be light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I'll make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of a fur. Therefore, I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 32, 7 says this, I will blot you out. I'll cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I'll make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. The theme is the cosmic lights will fail to give light. And then if you want to turn to Joel chapter 2, the reason why we're going to these prophets is where Jesus is referring to these things. God has already revealed these things in His Scripture and we want to get the picture in our mind. Blow a trumpet in Zion. This is Joel 2.1. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. And a great and powerful darkness. Our powerful people are in a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. So there will be fire that will come down from the heavens. And then in verse 10, he says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, before his camp, for his camp is exceedingly great. I think that's you and I with the angels. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? You're on board with the sexual revolution? You want to read Revelation 18? What type of authority does Christ have suggestions about our sexuality? 
or will there be a day of accounting? Does Christ care about idolatry? He does. And then in Revelation 6, you guys are probably familiar, maybe heard this before. In verse 12, again painting this picture for us. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon, or in the full moon, became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree that sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, all those that are real confident, right? And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Joel says, who can endure it? John in Revelation says, who will stand? Who will be proud in that day? See, all reality will come onto the earth on that day. And as Christians, we know that day's coming. We know it's sure. You say, how do we know? Well, we know that Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem the temple would come down. Did that happen? That happened. Right after that, he predicted the second coming. You think that'll happen? Jesus said he was going to be give his life as a ransom for many, that he was going to die. He was going to be rejected by Israel and suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. Did that happen? That happened. And then he said on the third day he would raise, and then he rose. There's no question this day is coming. There's no question, even as we look at the text, this whole text, uh, look at verse 32, Luke 21, 32. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. He gives the parable of the fig tree right before this. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out leaf, you see for yourself, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, the sun and moon and stars being darkened, you know the kingdom of God is near. Which means it didn't come in 70 AD. It didn't come fully. It came spiritually. We already saw in Luke 17, he says the kingdom of God doesn't come in ways that can be observed. But there will be a day when you'll want to see the Son of Man's day and you won't see it. That's today. You want to see the Son of Man's day? You want to see everything main right? You do. So do I. And then there's signs that it'll come. And then he says this in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation, what generation? 
the generation that sees these signs will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying, you take it to the bank. Heaven and earth will pass away. These words, it's going to happen. It's for sure. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the Lord gives signs to that generation of Christians that are enduring the most terrible things that have ever taken place on the face of the earth. But there's hope because this event points to to redemption. His return is not only judgment, but it's redemptive for the earth and for the believers. This is a day we long for. We hate evil and we want justice. What it means to be a Christian is once God changes your heart, you can't love your sin anymore. Yes, you sin, but you hate it. You want to fight it. You want to kill it. It doesn't bring joy and you know it. And so we long for the day when all the wrongs will be made right. Look, look at this where he says um, in verse 28, now when these things, this is in Luke 21, 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Why aren't we already redeemed in Christ? It's begun. Right? Is everything made right in your heart? No. You're still struggling with sin. The Apostle Paul would have to tell you, don't walk with your spirit, or walk in the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. We're waiting for the consummation, the end where all things are made right, where every tear is wiped away. We see that it's powerful and glorious. This is different than his first coming. Yes, it was glorious, but it wasn't seen that way. It it wasn't experienced that way. It's a physical. He comes down in the same glorified body that he had probably most clearly seen in his transfiguration when there is a little foretaste of the glorious new body of Christ in the transfiguration. But Luke tells us in Acts 1 that just as the way you saw him go up, being taken on the cloud in the same way, he'll return. There's some who believe that it's only a spiritual return of Christ. That's not what Luke tells us. That's not what Christ tells us. He'll come in his physical body back to this earth. 
He'll come in a glorious, powerful way so that every eye can see him. And it's guaranteed. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. So what should this produce in our life? As we ponder this, how, how should this be practical? It's interesting to talk about from an end times perspective. How's it going to help you in whatever sin battle you have right now? How's it going to help you with all your concerns and political worries with what's going on in this world? How's it going to help you with your neighbor who's a jerk next door? who you just want to retaliate against. This text is practical for us. As I pondered, what is this? What ought this to bring to us? The first thing I have down is humility. What better response than for everyone to be humbled? Isn't that what the second coming does? Who are you and who am I in light of this glorious day? Who do we give an account to? Is it not the Lord Christ? John Calvin says every Christian virtue grows out of the soil of humility. If there's not humility, every other virtue gets poisoned. And the cross of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Christ humble us. There's two days the Christians ought to live between. You learn about sin when you look at the cross If you could watch Christ being cruelly beaten and nailed to the cross, and if you could see the agony on Christ's face when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the wrath of God is being poured out on Christ. If you were to sit there and say, why? Well, because your sin is on him. You look at that cross and you say, I knew my sin was bad, but the Son of God? This to the Son of God? And so we learn about our sin as we see the cross and as we see Jesus Christ come the second time, not as a Savior, but as one who's going to make war against the ungodly and He's going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And human beings will be more rare than gold in that day. You say, why? Sin. Why did God flood the entire earth and save eight souls? Sin. And so as a Christian, we live between two days. Here's what Christ did on my behalf, here's who he is, and humility ought to be the soil of your heart.
What do you have to boast of? Sinner saved by grace. What glory ought to come to you? All glory should be to Christ. It ought to bring repentance. As I studied this text, that's what, that's what I felt is just, I don't take Christ serious enough. I don't live in reality enough. What a glorious Savior I have and what a terrifying Savior I have. It ought to bring about faith. It ought to bring about faith in God in a world that throws doubt on my faith. It says you're crazy to be a Christian. You're crazy to believe the Bible. Yeah, well, I know a day's coming. You can call me crazy all day long. Jerusalem's already been destroyed. Temple's down. That happened. He died. He rose again. I know a day's coming. I know it. And so faith is built as we see this. Does it not produce a readiness in us that we ought to be ready? Look at verse uh, 34. Luke 21, 34. But, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that, that they come upon you suddenly like a trap. It ought to produce a readiness of faith in us. I think of Psalm 73 where at the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist is complaining, look at the unrighteous Everything goes good for them. Everything goes bad for me. It's pity party at the start of it. And then at the end of it, he says, he goes into the sanctuary and he, said, and he real, comes to his senses and he says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I said this, I would, or, and if I said I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed good to me, or it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you sent them, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so as we look at this, it ought to produce a readiness to endure. Holy living. And it ought to produce hope and love. Christians should be the last people on this earth whining and complaining. Whine about this. Complain about that. How's it going to turn out for you, Christian? Have you read the end? Do you see Christ coming in His glory? 
And on top of all this, it ought to cause us to worship, which is the goal of your life. There is no worship is a me is is there's nothing beyond worship. The goal of every all creation is that you worship God. That's why God created you, that you would worship him. We don't worship him so that something else happens. You see, that's the climax of all things that we see who God is and we know who we are and we live in light of that reality. And the question for all of you is, is are you ready? Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you're sitting here and you're concerned today about how you stand before Christ, realizing that the end of your life, you'll stand before him, like it or not, you can disregard Christ now, you will stand before him. Every knee will bow. You can bow now when pardon is being offered to you. In that Joel text, when he ends, he says, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Here's the verse I left out. The very next verse says this, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. He's not concerned with your outward worship. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So will you do that? Will you rend your hearts before Christ? 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What day should you be made right to Christ? Are you crazy? You want to wait another minute? You realize that great and glorious God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to carry your sins so you don't have to? And the invitation is given to you? And you have the choice? Relate to Christ as the Savior or relate to Him as the judge who will tread the winepress of the wrath of God? Will you not come to Him today? Who in their right mind would say, yeah, I don't know if all this is going to happen. Seems like the culture has things more figured out than this Bible. Do you not hear the truthfulness of the Word of God? Does it not expose your heart? You can deny God if you want. The problem is, is the Scripture tells you what's going on in your heart and you know it. You could say there's no God all you want. But Paul says in Romans that all you're doing is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Because you're a sinner, you don't want to believe there's a God. You don't want to believe there's a day of accounting, but there is. 
But there's good news for you. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can experience Christ as your Savior. The final text I want to give you is Hebrews 9.26. This one always sticks in my mind. Halfway through the verse he says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That's the first time He came. And just as He appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, it's going to happen, it's been appointed by God, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those that are eagerly waiting for Him. A good test of whether you've been converted, whether your heart's been changed, is are you the type of Christian that's eagerly waiting for His return? Have you realized that the pleasures of this world, that this world's passing away? Have you realized that chasing after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is silliness. These things aren't from the Father, but are from the world. Are you eagerly waiting? Because when He comes a second time, that's who He's coming for. Your hope in this world is Jesus Christ. You can go to sleep tonight because Jesus Christ wins. All evil will be put under His feet. And so my prayer is, is that you'll take the second coming of Christ, you'll meditate on it, and you'll say, God, teach me, instruct my heart, let me cling to Jesus as though there is no other hope because there is no other hope. Father, thank you that you revealed these things to us. Father, I pray that this would produce love for our neighbor, that drives us crazy. Father, let us have a heart of pity and mercy rather than enter into a fight with our neighbor. Lord, humble us. Let love come out of us. Father, give us courage to be loving enough to share the gospel with the people that we might least want to share the gospel with. We know what's coming. Father, instruct us in these things. And Father, may Christ be glorified. Pray this in His name. Amen.